Hi, everybody. It's Megan Reardon Jarvis, host of Grief is My Side Hustle, the podcast. I'm really glad you're here today. I want to share this conversation with my friend Paulo Kane with you all. Paul had the terrible experience as a 15-year-old of losing his brother Mick, who was two years older, to an asthma attack in the middle of the night. Paul has some beautiful reflections of both what that was like as a young person and how it feels as an adult and a dad with his own children, how he relates to himself as a teenager and how he relates to his parents now that he can share the experience of having children. I'm really grateful to Paul for being here. I fell madly in love with him during our conversation, and I know you are going to also. Thanks for being here. Thanks for listening. And here's Paul. I am here with my friend, Paul O'Kane, who has agreed to come and talk to all of us about a loss that he had in his childhood. Paul, thank you so much for joining us all the way from Ireland today. You're very welcome, Mike. Paul, why don't you just jump in for us? Tell us um, about where you are in the world. Maybe since the listeners don't view you, how old you are and what you do, and then maybe jump into the story of loss that you want to share with us. Sure. I'm originally from a little village just outside Belfast. I moved to Dublin about 30 years ago. So I've been in in Dublin for the past 30 years. I worked as a newspaper journalist for 15 years. I'm currently the head of corporate communications for a large company in Ireland. And so effectively 30 years in in the communications industry, be that on one side as a journalist and now in public relations. So yeah, I'm I'm 53, very young looking 53, but I'm 53. And um, I I suppose that how how I came to be talking to you here as as you were when I was was 15, uh, back in, in 1983, I lost my older brother who died in an asthma attack. He was 16 and a half and he effectively just dropped dead which uh, still now, when I think back, is probably the most awful thing that's ever happened to me. I've lost my mother and father since. and I could talk about the death, the death of my mother and the death of my father, and I would find it less difficult than mm. to talk about the death of my brother. It was just an unbelievably awful thing to have happened um, to my family at the time. Luckily, this is the case. It's something that very few people have had to go through. I've met very few other people who have lost siblings at, at that point in their life and it's it's just a very very difficult thing to go to have gone through you and I were talking a little bit before we started recording about maybe culturally how things are in Ireland and maybe they're a little bit different from the U.S. but also I think over time in the 80s things were different maybe than they are now what are your memories about being a 15 year old about how you're parents were and how your friends were with you and school and who helped? How did you manage? It's funny. I I think about it a lot. You know, I don't know whether the States was different at the time, certainly in in the 1980s in in Belfast. And I would say pretty much throughout Ireland, I don't think grief counseling or or counseling even exists. It might have existed for some other people. It certainly didn't exist for someone growing up in a working class suburb of Belfast. It just, you know, it wasn't on the radar. No one that we knew had counselling or had grief counselling, I'd, I'd never heard of it. it. And you didn't even think of things that way. You kind of got on with it. In a way, there's a very particular Irish way of death, which is still the case, I think, in certain communities. It's changing a bit. But in terms of my brother's death, it was a traditional, um, in terms of the way it was dealt with, it was very traditional Irish 
Catholic family, very traditional Irish Catholic wake. I can vividly remember my brother died at about three in the morning and I can remember my father, God rest him, going to wake relations who lived around the corner, you know, knocking on their door because I don't think we even had a telephone at the time um, to get them to come. Well, you know, he went to their house to get them to come and help. I can remember my aunt. It's funny, the odd things that stay in your memory. I can vividly remember my, at about five or six in the morning, my aunt getting me to help clean the kitchen because the house was going to be so busy with people coming. And I can remember being really angry at my aunt at the time thinking, I don't care about the kitchen. I don't care about the kitchen cupboards. I don't care about any of this. My brother is dead. I don't want to be doing this. I just want to be on my own. And I know exactly why I had to help and do all of those things. And there's five of us, there's five children in the family, two of my, I'm the youngest. And my brother, Mick, who died, was, was next to me. And we're kind of a classic Irish Catholic family of that age, you know. So I'm 53 now. If Mick was still alive, Mick would be 55. My sister then is 57. The next brother is 59, turning 60 in July, and the one above is 62. And two of my older, or two of my older four siblings were in university in Britain, so they, you know, they had to be. I think of my poor father, you know, he, he had to contact them, and and, you know, my sister, God love her, was on a, was on a train going down from Wales to London to participate in a big protest, and they had to stop the train. All of these things were more difficult then because it was hard. Yeah. Of course. Hard to find people, hard to communicate with people. My dad had to ring the police in, uh, I think, somewhere in, in, in Aberystwyth in Wales to, to, to track my sister down. As the youngest son of a youngest son, I'd carried coffins by that stage. And so, again, that's a very Irish thing where you know, you'd at the funeral and you know, you'd walk behind the hearse and you, everyone in, who w- went to the funeral, every man who wanted to, and once you got to a certain age, you'd be deemed to be a man, you could carry a coffin. And it was seen as a real sign of respect that you carry the coffin. And also in an Irish way, You'd see bodies and coffins. You'd see, you know, I think we have a very matter-of-fact attitude to death and yeah. dealing with death. You said but before never... we, you said right before we started recording that the Irish do death really well, but not we do, grief, but... maybe. Yeah, I think we do, or certainly we did. It's changing. You know, I think about when my brother died, when when my mother died. You know, there were people in the parish who would come and do things. They'd wash the dead, and they weren't particularly connected to the church they didn't have a role in the church per se that was just something they did you know I think about where my wife is from there are ladies in the parish who organize the meal after the funeral and it's served in the parish hall that's replicated all across yeah um, it's not just the same it's changing now and in, in, if I'd go to a funeral in Dublin it's beginning to change you know the cities are, are a bit different one of the other vivid memories I have of my brother's death is just vast amounts of food in the house, you know, neighbours yeah. and friends, you know, bringing food and trays of sandwiches and, you know, and bowls of stew. And just there being a constant parade of people coming, helping to serve tea and all, you know, and, and sandwiches and all that sort, sort of stuff. But I do remember vividly, so after my aunt, actually a lovely woman, and I, I, I'm so fond of her. A 10 minute period, I wanted to throttle her. But there was a period I remember after it just got light. I can't remember if I told people I was going out or I snuck out. I can't remember that, to be honest. But I went out for a walk on my own. This really struck me, and I'm sure, despite having been, you know, connected closely to people that had died before. This had never quite struck me in, the, in this way. And I'm sure it, it has struck anyone who's gone through a, a traumatic death. So I went out onto the main road where we lived and I was walking on the road it was early in the morning. 
I saw, you know, I saw cars going up and down. Not very many people. I can remember I saw a van delivering milk. And I was just I was shocked and thought, and I thought, how can the world be continuing as normal? My brother's dead. How, how can they be delivering milk? Don't these people know yeah. what has happened? And of course, that's a ludicrous position to take. We all have it, though. I've heard that yeah, so yeah. many times. Um, but I'd never had it before. And I, I, yeah. um, I had the reverse first many years later when I came home after, after my father had died. And I was in a, a local shop buying something that I needed to buy for his funeral. But it was early in the morning and I just wanted to get it done with. And, and people locally didn't know that my father had died yet because he died overnight. And myself and my brother were in the sh- shop sorting something out very quickly. And he and I skulked around the shop because we didn't want to meet anyone. And the reason we didn't want to meet anyone was, had we met anyone who knew us, they'd say, gosh, why are you both up in, you know, from At Dublin? This hour. Then, we'd, yeah. then we'd have to tell them. Yeah. And that would be the first time they'd find out that my father died. And they'd be embarrassed because that's how they'd find out. So that was kind of in reverse. But I, I'll never forget that feeling of... Yeah at the world happened and of course the world trundles on I mean I cannot tell you in my grief and loss work as a therapist how comforting it is to people when I say yeah pretty much everyone has had that experience of I don't understand how the earth is spinning on its axis when my feet aren't even on this planet anymore that the incongruity of something that changes you on a cellular level doesn't stop the earth from spinning I mean, maybe it plays to our narcissism, but every person who's been through a traumatic death has some, I can't tell you if I started writing now, I would have, you know, it would take me a month to write down every story of each person. Yours is on the path after your brother died. I've heard, you know, stories of people looking out of a taxi or being on a plane. I've heard stories of people yelling, you know, how, how dare you be drinking your coffee? Uh, I often wonder... That's when I've never really, I never really asked them, but I often wonder about how my brother and sister met at, I can't, I can't remember, they met at whatever airport they met at in Britain to fly home together. Yeah. How did they get, you know, how did they, I'm not sure it happens all the time. You, know, you go through the mechanic things of getting on a flight and sitting beside strangers and being checked in. So I presume airport staff are entirely sympathetic to people in that, in, yeah. in that circumstance, but, you know, they got home. I think it was, I presume they got home Saturday lunchtime. I think I can't even remember. You know, all of, all of the time becomes, yeah. kind of, you know, squished together. But, you know, I can remember odd things about that stick about, you know, there were a couple of people who came who said, who said things that were totally incongruous, you know, really silly comments. And, and I realized at the time it was because they were kind of touched by the enormity of it. Again, it's only when I, you know, it's not, Yes, it was clearly awful at the time. It was the worst thing that ever happened to me. But actually, sometimes in, in certain ways, it's only when you have other bits of life experience, you really, you know, I didn't really understand my parents until I had children. Yeah. I can, you know, and I remember when my son was born, he was a, our first child was born, it was a C-section and my wife was in, you know, was in recovery. And I can remember sitting with our son. Now, it might've been post-parenthood hormones, but I can remember having these waves of kind of excitement about being a father, but also I had waves of guilt yeah. about the things that I'd done. And I wasn't a bad child. I didn't bring shame on the household or anything of that nature. But I thought about some of the things I'd done in my childhood and how careless I'd been with their feelings. And I was ashamed of the thing. I just, and also they suddenly made sense to me. And my, the enormity of my brother's death to them 
Now, I, had always, I could always see it was different for them, but the enormity of my brother's death to them made more sense to me because I looked at my newborn son and I thought, oh, God, my parents did this with Mick and they did everything for him and they loved him. Just like that. You know, just like that. And they loved him and he was their child and they buried him. Yeah. It's untenable, isn't it? I mean, I think... You just, you're not meant to bury your children. You just no. And to think, I I always try to, I had an additional level of understanding of them and the awful thing that they went through once, once I had, once I became a parent, once I had my own child. Because the idea of anything happening to one of my three is just awful. But you asked, funny, you asked the question earlier, which I, in in classic style, failed to answer. And I talked to (laughs) him, I should come back. You asked me about kind of health and how people dealt with it. So, the local community were just, and it's funny, I think you took it for granted at the time. Also, I was a child, you know, but when I think back now, they did what Irish people do. They were brilliant. They helped my mom and dad. So my brother died on a Saturday morning at 3 a.m. And then, you know, my poor father had to do the things that you had to do that we didn't have a family grave. Yeah. We didn't need it. So well, he had to sort that out. And that took a couple of days, whatever. And I, I can't remember exactly what day the funeral was on, but we had, you know, so we had the funeral. So I went to a Catholic boys school in Belfast so like 1200 kids in school 30 guys in, in in my class so I had forgotten about this until many years later when a friend reminded me the school brought my whole class all of my classmates to the funeral I couldn't remember that and the fact that I couldn't remember that made me realize how deep I was in grief at the time I think I could be wrong in the days but say let's say for sake of argument Nick was buried on the Wednesday the Thursday I'm pretty sure I'm back to school the next Monday. Yeah. And I went back to school as a teenage boy. If you think teenage boys are bad now in term, terms of expressing their feelings, yeah. teenage boy in the 1980s. Now, and I had really good friends. And I, some of my best friends are still the friends that I had. You know, even though we haven't lived, sometimes we, have, we haven't lived within hundreds, you know, my, those, are, those guys are, you know, three or four close friends from school are still, you know, some of my closest friends. Now, if they hear this, they might say that's not. And I, 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 my recollection is that when I went back to school, no one ever mentioned it again. Yeah. I didn't think bad of them for not mentioning it again, because what else was going to happen? And I only realized the impact that it had on them um, many, many years later. Let's say it's, it's seven, eight years later, when a guy I know who was in class with him, he wasn't one of my best friends. He was sort of in the you know, if he was sort of a second tier friend, if you, and that's a good yep. way to describe it. Yeah. You know what I mean? I do. Um, he was chatting to me one time. We had, we got for a few beers, and he was in Dublin for a couple of days, and we met, we went for a few beers. And he said to me, he, he brought up the subject, and he said, well, without even, without even thinking, he said, and of course, it had such a massive impact on the rest of us. And I was like, what? And he said, it had such a massive impact on the rest of us. And I said, really? And he kind of looked at me kind of wide-eyed and said, sure, of course it did. And I said, I, don't, I wasn't aware of that. And he said, think about it, Paul. He said, for most of us, most of us had never experienced, most of us, he said, okay, with one or two notable exceptions, he said, none of us had even lost a parent at that point. And we went to the funeral of someone, the brother of someone who was one of our friends who was in school with us. And he said, we, you know, he said, I said, I'll never forget your brother's funeral. And I had no clue. Because they did, why would you? 
I, I, and it's funny in a way, it's not, just, it's not a criticism of them that they didn't have the wherewithal to talk to me about it. I didn't have the wherewithal to talk yeah. to them about it either. Yeah. We didn't pretend it didn't happen. Everyone, you know, nice things happened to me afterwards that, that, that when I think back, I kind of think, oh yeah, that's why, you know, that happened, you know, like you know, one of my friends, their parents made, brought me, when they were bringing him, you know, to see a show or something, they always brought yeah. me in. And I remember I was so stupid and it was, a, it was a lovely thing. You know, they always seemed to have a spare ticket. They didn't have a spare ticket. They no. got an extra ticket, to, you know, and they were the loveliest people. And, you know, and I'm kind of sorry I didn't get the chance to thank them properly for all. I think back to lots of my friends' parents who, of course, they weren't going to say it to me because they didn't want they didn't want to make me feel awkward or. Yeah. But I, I think of my, of my close friends, who I would have seen a lot and been in their houses. All of their parents were unbelievably nice to me. Now, I'm not saying they were. I don't have the other benchmark to compare it to. Sure. I don't have I don't have the me that didn't lose his brother version. So, yeah. but I presume once they would never have said it. I presume they all must have said, "Oh, that poor, you know, that poor boy." You know, my only memory of it even being mentioned by any of my teachers was our class went to see. We were studying a play for O level, so it's a you know it's a national state exam, and we were studying a play, and the play was being performed by some amateur dramatic society. In Belfast and our class and several other classes, children from other schools, because it was, it was on the curriculum for the whole place, really, were brought to this production. It was a certain element of misbehaviour, quite bad misbehaviour, actually. And so I think my entire class and the other classes all ended up getting, they got detention or Saturday yeah. detention. Everyone was in a lot of trouble. Yep. And I can remember my English teacher when he was announcing that every, you know, he announced that everyone was in a lot of trouble. He, he took me aside at the end of the class as we were, uh, as they were leaving the class. And he said, that doesn't apply to you, Paul, because I know that you weren't messing about. Because I think it had been like maybe 10 days after my brother had died. So he said, you're not coming in for detention because uh, I know. Yeah. And I think that's probably the only, uh, the only discussion, the only reference I had. And, and I often think about, you know, my brother was so young. I don't think his God loved him. I don't think his friends really had the wherewithal to come and one guy calling. I think once, maybe or twice. But you know, a teenage boy doesn't want to be calling to talk to the mother and father of his friend who just died because he's or she is going through the traumatic thing themselves and trying to figure out. And also, the basic basic logistics made things difficult. You know, it was like you know people didn't have people. Although it sounds like the dark ages, not everyone had a car then. Yeah. So you were 15, he was almost 17. Those are, and you're, and male, what we know developmentally is that those are not people that you expect to do a whole lot of talking about their feelings ever, regardless of what's going on. They're going to take long walks, listen to the cure and not spend a lot of time talking to you about what those feelings are like. So to hear you talk about that sort of in the developmental spectrum, you know, with a big family and a tight knit community. I should have said was that also, and this was a big factor as well, you know, I'm, I'm his kid brother, you know, yeah. I was always his kid brother for, you know, that might have been different. We were very small. I was the, his name was the first word I said. Yeah. First word that I said. And by the time, by the time he died, you know, at the time he died, he and I didn't have the greatest of relationships. You know, I was, you know, I was a snotty nosed kid brother. He was quite cool. Um, yeah. <laughs> And our lives, even by then, I'd, I'd begun, you know, I'd begun to take a, you know, 
were taking different paths. You know, he had left school by that point. Academia wasn't his thing. And I was kind of head down thinking about where I might be going to university, you know, we were going to be doing different things anyway. If you think back to the kind of the cool 80s fashion, you know, that's, you know, he dressed well, he had girlfriends, he had, you know, I was, yeah. I was a snotty-nosed kid to him, you know? You know, if he was heading off to do things saying, you know, would you not take Paul with you? And taking me with, with him was the last thing. Yeah, the death of his coolness. Oh, God, yeah. yeah. I, and that's the other thing. I was quint- I was quintessentially uncool. Aside from being the youngest, which also which creates a kind of, a dynamic I I had been my mother had been very ill during pregnancy with me very very ill I was kind of a what she always said I was a miracle birth but I think that may have been through uh, rose tinted spectacles I was certainly I was born I was premature I was very very ill as a child I wasn't I wasn't expected to, to survive at a point so I was kind of she worried about me I think a lot when I was small and was very protective so even when we were quite small you know Mick God rest him would have gone off and done things that you know, two years later when I was his age, I just didn't do. Yeah. So there was a, you know, he would have viewed me as a mommy's boy. That would have been a reasonably accurate view, you know, for a lot of my childhood. So we just, we, were, we weren't, you know, we looked alike. And, you know, if I, if I found photographs and sent you photographs of us at, at certain ages, you know, where my mother had a friend who used to knit us matching jumpers and, you know, we looked like. I've not seen that photo good. from the Irish not, Times, from the, your beautiful you know, not, article not, you wrote. You know, not, you know, we looked alike. And we all look alike in my family, you know. We yeah. we look so alike that we that one of us has been stopped back when I had hair, not so much anymore. But we look so alike that you'd be stopped by someone in the street and saying, "You must be related to so." You know, we look so alike that strangers would stop and say, "You must be a brother of my friend because you look so like him." So look, we all look alike. We're quite different personalities. But no, there was no. Um, it was only years later that I looked back and thought, "Sure, there was no." You know, we just. We muddled through, but I think everyone muddled through back then. You know. Let me ask a question about this, though. And you may know a little bit of this story. Bear with me. But but my sort of seminal childhood event was being not the primary family to a death, but sort of the grief adjacent family to a teenager who died when I was in grade school when I was eight. It's interesting to hear your friend say to you, you know, this had a huge impact on me because even though this was not my brother, all my roads lead back to that. And certainly I think what the loss of my mom being so difficult was partly because I was still carrying so much of the energy of, you know, I was eight, not 15. So at eight, it was terrifying. To, to understand that a child could die. It had never occurred to me. I still believed in Santa. I mean, it had just never occurred to me. I found report cards that talk about this. It's just how angry I was. I was angry all the time. I was angry at everyone. My brother recently, my younger brother, his family had a devastating event. His son's best friend died in a fire. And he called me and said, you know, you and I are older than mom and dad were when this happened in our lives. And it stopped me in my tracks. Like, you know, I've had a ton of therapy. I'm a therapist now. I spend a lot of time not holding them accountable, but wishing they could have handled things differently, done more talking about it, been able to just help, help us, help me navigate through some of the fear. Because what I learned to do was just be completely silent, just, you know, and I was eight. So my ideas that I came up with were not great ideas. I'm curious for you, being a parent now to three children now, 
no, having that relatability as, I mean, I even have that with my mom. How did she ever make all those dinners without a microwave? Like she had double the kids I have. How do you think about some of that now? And, and do you reflect that to your kids? Do they share the story or are we still trying to protect them, you know, from the concepts of death and loss? I can't, you know, if 15 was bad, I can't, I would have lost people at eight, but not, not, not a child, not that way, you know, that I, you know, it was kind of people who you might expect to die because they were old. Although, of course, when I think back now, some of them were not old at all, but, you know, old, 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 <laughs> Right, we thought, we thought 50 was old back then. We thought 40 was old, yeah, but yeah, it's all relevant. Exactly. No, it's funny, that's a really good question, you know, like, Mick is still, Mick is part of me and he's a big part of me. He's a big part of my family. I've done a thing since, since he died, you know, I was thinking today, and I think it's 38 years. That's two of his lifetimes, you know, it's such a long time ago. And, but since he died, if I've met anyone and we've had, we've had that kind of, you know, if I met, if I met you and this might've been the case when we first met, if we had a conversation about family and you asked me about my family, I would say that I have three brothers and a sister. Yeah. And then you might ask me what they do, and I would tell you what my surviving siblings do. And I'd kind of half hope maybe you would not notice the fact that I'd miss one. Because I wouldn't want you to feel embarrassed if you say, oh, what does the last guy do? And I'd say, well, actually, he died X amount of years ago. But under no circumstances would I ever tell anyone that I've got two brothers and a sister, because that's a lie. Yeah, that's not true. Now, one of my brothers died 38 years ago, but I still have three brothers. Yeah. And if I live to be 95, I'd still have three brothers. Yeah. And it's, and, I, and the kids, it's funny, the kids, kids are going to worry, but it's, you know, it's a big part of my life. Like before I had children, I used to always, I used to think if I had a son, I'd call him Mick. Yeah. My brother. Uh, three of the remaining four of us have children and none of us um called and we all have there are boys in, in all three families and none of us called them Mick and I, and I I know why I didn't and I think possibly they made maybe did the same thing as I got closer to the potential of actually being a father and having a child I realized and maybe it's I don't think this is hypocritical but despite him being such a huge part of my life and still being such a huge part of my life I didn't want to saddle my child with being named after someone who a day you know someone who such an awful backstory in a way, you know, why you call that? Oh, I'm calling that after my dad's brother who died, you know? So my second, uh, our second boy is called Rory Michael. So he is called after my brother and he knows that he's called after my brother, but that's his second name. And similarly, my sister has a uh, boy and his second name is Michal, which is the Irish for Michael. Yeah. So he's remembered in our family names, but I don't, that's why I've never asked my sister. I presume she did the same thing. I, it just didn't feel right to call. If I called my son Michael, he would he'd be Michael O'Kane, the same mm-hmm. as my brother was. My eldest child is named after my father. And initially, when he was very, very small and you'd bring him to, to hospital appointments and they'd call out his name, I would kind of look around and think For your dad. That, that can't be right. My dad died several years ago, you know, because he was my dad. But of course now he he isn't, you know, now that name is him. He's but no, the, my kids are very, very aware. And that I have another brother who's in heaven, who's not with us. They're at that age where they're very aware that they don't have that, you know, that my mother and father aren't here. I kind of, they have, you know, they, in primary school here, they have kind of grandparent day. And I, 
I understand why they have it, but it kind of annoys me at the oh, same time. Because, the you know, all the worst. Like, you know, worst. it's not, uh, I'm, look, it's an accident of circumstance that my parents died before they were born. Being the youngest of the youngest doesn't give you a yeah. great, you know, a great starting position. And big families. I looked at my children, I'd love my children to have known my, my mother and father and to have a sense of their people and who they are. You know, when, when we were having our first child, when you have that first appointment with the doctor and they ask you all about your family history and you kind of think oh yeah there are all these things that go back you know generations on each side that you know that they need to know I would think it was very strange if I didn't tell people I'm not saying I don't walk around and say hello I'm Paul Kane. I had a brother who died 38 years ago I don't, it's an important part of who I am I don't hide it and I've never hidden it I have ended up ended up in scenarios where you have a slightly awkward conversation because the other person is more awkward about the concept of death than you are if it comes up in conversation and I'm not going to hide it so it won't come up, you know, if it comes up naturally, it'll come up naturally. But I think it's very important that the kids are aware of, of the family. You know, my children were really present when my mom and dad died. I mean, they were literally present with me when I found out my mom died. I share the stories of, you know, mom, why did you become a therapist? Or what, you know, what was your childhood like? You know, a seminal event, like a loss, like a death. Is I talk to them really openly about it. And obviously, because we have audio listeners and not video listeners, you and I have both been really teary during this conversation. And I talk to them even about that. It's not, I, I'm 47. So, you know, we can do the math. Chris died when I was eight. I can still get teary about that. And when I first went into therapy, I thought, oh, well, this is unprocessed grief. And I haven't, you know, I haven't done enough work. And once I do the work, I will not have these hard feelings. And it's not that at all. It's that the same thing about being a parent, which is you have a well of love that never stops filling for the, the precious people and your own self, right? Like your own self as a child. Part of what is heartbreaking for me is how the entire system, I don't have disappointment in how my family or my town or my relatives or my friends handled that situation now that I'm a grown up because it was an impossible situation to handle. It was impossible. We have better information now. I believe everyone would handle it differently now. But when I look and I say to my kids, like, no, I, you know, I, I still love that teenager who died. I'm, you know, his cousin is my best friend. We're all intricately sticked together. I mean, I believe that's part of it is that that shared trauma just stitches you together in a way. It does. I don't mean this sounds like a trite statement. I don't mean it to sound that way, but you know, I think back to we all did the best that we could. And I mean that in the best sense of that Absolutely. phrase. We did the best that we could in the time, in the circumstances. We didn't, you know, people were really kind to my to my mother and father and, and were supportive. And we didn't have the tools that people have now. But you know, I've thought about it now. If, if this happened to someone now, yeah, they'd get grief counseling, they'd get probably grief counseling on their own, they'd get counseling with the family. Would it make them better? I don't know, because I can't be that person. I can only be the person that I am now. And look, and again, this sounds very, very un-Irish and kind of philosophical. Is there a part of me that is broken because of what happened? I think there is, yeah. But there's degrees of brokenness. I don't get upset about my brother's death every day. And it's a silly question, but I couldn't, you know, it's impossible for me to say, well, actually, yes, on average, 1.3 days a month. <laughs> right, you know, right. It doesn't work that way. I might be fine for a long time. I think about him, but I might be fine for a long time. And then something might happen. I hear a song on the radio that reminds me of him. Yeah. Like, you know, um, I, watch, 
I watch something in a film that triggers a memory the same way everyone happens through those grief things. But I don't mean, I don't mean to sound maudlin. It's not that I feel I've, I've somehow suffered anything different than other people. Just a very, very bad and unfortunate thing happened to my family when I was young. It was an awful, awful, awful thing. It isn't that you never get over it. It's just you, it, you're different, you know. Like I remember. Yeah, you are remember, different. That's right. I can remember. I can remember shortly afterwards, or very shortly afterwards, thinking to myself that I'm going to live my life. Oh, I'm going to never take a day for granted. I'm going to live every day like I'm going to do this, and and you don't. No. Like maybe some people do, but I don't. I do the same thing that everyone else does when I'm, you know, when I was a single man in my mid twenties. Did I lie in bed half the day sometimes because you know <laughs> because you could? Days. Yeah. Or did you waste the day playing a video game? I did exactly the same things everyone as everyone else did, despite making myself all of these promises that I was going to live differently because I'd experienced this and also live differently for him. That's nonsense. I'm not living for him. I'm living for me. But you do do some things differently. And small, um, there you know, little things that happen and you think, hmm, like one of the things sticks in my mind was, so let's say I was 15. This is probably maybe... Four or five years later, maybe six years later, I went interrailing with, with two friends, or you're railing, I think is the call. Yeah, interrailing <laughs> for people who don't know is taking the train all across your countries. <laughs> yeah. So I, I traveled around Europe with uh, two friends, one of whom was a, is a, is and was a very close school friend from that time. So he knew the backstory entirely. So this was like, this is the late 80s. There were no mobile phones. Yeah. Pay phone, you know. If I was in Denmark or France, the idea of ringing my mother and father from a payphone when I was living on less than 10 pounds a day, it just wasn't yeah. going to happen, you know. So I headed off and uh, went off on my holidays for, uh, for an entire month. And I remember we were waiting for the boat to go back to Ireland to then take the train back up to Belfast. And I had just enough money left where I could go. And, and actually, it didn't occur to me to make reverse charges calls for some reason. It was a payphone. I went and got some coins. I was ringing home. And I can remember the fear as I stood in the phone box before I put the money in. And the fear was what could have happened while I was away? Could my mother have died? My father? Could something else have happened? It was like a knot in my stomach of fear. Didn't last very long. Dad answered the phone, had a quick chat. And I said, you know, I'll be home tomorrow. And he said, I'll come and pick you up. What time are you going to, you know, very quick. Everything fine? Yeah, everything fine. See that. And I walked back to my friend and he was going to make the phone call next home. And then he was the phone. I said, he came back. And I said, how's things? And I said, gosh, that, that moment of fear before the answer the phone is awful. And he said, what moment of fear? What are you talking about? Yeah. Because it looked and he said, that would never, he said, I understand why you would think that. It's but that like would never occur to me. Yeah. yeah. That would never have occurred to me in a million years. And I was kind of thinking, right, okay, I, I do think, think you know, we just you. we think of things slightly differently, but there's yeah. a reason why you do. But it, and I'm only I'm only giving that example is you know, it's small legacies, right? That's what you mean. Yeah. Is the, is the way you do, carry it is I think you did. my wife said to me a long time ago that you know, I think you you carry a little kind of pool of sorrow with you I think that's probably a good description of it there's a loss there and, a, and it's not just a loss of him and a life it's a life unlived as as your would be in your cousin's case yeah. you know I sometimes you know when he hits you know when he hits particular significant birthdays I think about him I think about him all the time but I particularly think about him and I think 
how how would his life have ended up? What how, how would things have planned out? And then there were just times when I, you know, say I hear some a song on the radio with something, or you know, occasionally I might read something in a book and it makes me think about it. I don't. It isn't this bag of awfulness that I carry with me. You know, I lead an entirely normal, you know, or yeah. normal slash abnormal life as anyone else. But it's just it's a thing that I have, and it's it's a combination, I think, as well. The only thing I can think of that would be worse than what happened to to my family in terms of losing my brother the way that we did would be had someone killed him. Yeah, I think, or maybe an accident like. Maybe, you know, like, like my brother just dropped, dropped dead in an asthma attack. You know, it was no one's fault. Yeah. Uh, it wasn't like, you know, oh, if only we tied the boat up or locked the pool or, you know. The, and yet my poor father, God bless him, blamed himself for the rest of his life over a whole series of things. Over not being there, we got home that evening and all sorts of things and shouldn't have blamed himself over. Which I used to be entirely confused by until I had my own children. And then yes. I went, all right, yeah. Yeah. You know. You understand the responsibility that a parent feels, even though wholly irrational in a lot of ways. I don't particularly remember us sitting around and discussing coping with, you know, obviously we discussed Mick and we discussed yeah. Mick all the time, but I have no recollection of us discussing coping with things or how we were getting on or we just we just did. Like I remember when my, when my two siblings had been living in Britain, when they came home, I remember going to... So there, there would have been, there'd have been a, a normal mass in the parish on Sunday. And, you know, we lived in what was effectively, it was a village when I was a child. So everyone knew everyone, you know, in, a, in yeah. the classic kind of village way. And there'd been mass on, on some, there was a mass in the next parish on Sunday evening that we were all going to go to. And we left to go to the mass. And I forget where we went, but we went somewhere else because we didn't want to go to mass. And the reason that we didn't want to go to mass was we didn't want people looking at us, yeah. which sounds ludicrous now, but it was kind of like, I don't want we don't, and also we hadn't really had time to ourselves. Of course. Because, and, and you understand why wakes in Ireland are partly organised that way. You have the funeral and then you have, we come back to our house, I can't remember if we had, we had stew or something or, or, or soup and sandwiches or whatever. But people come back to the house, we didn't go to a hotel anymore or a pub or whatever, we come back to the house. And, and then, so people do that and then they leave and it's only really kind of an hour or two or two or three hours after that, that kind of post-funeral event that actually you're on your own. And that's probably the first time you're on your own. I'm sure some relations will have stayed around for a while, but it might only be the next day or two where you're actually on your own as a family. And, and, and probably shortly afterwards, my brother and sister flew back to Britain to go back to, you know, they were in college, they had to, they had to go back, you know. But I, no, I don't ever remember. We didn't talk about how we were getting on or that, you know. I've spent all these years studying grief and loss and the talking about him is sort of an invitation to let your feelings be shared amongst other people. In my experience, we really didn't talk about it at all. There was no talking. And no, we talked about him a lot. A traumatic event like the death of your brother does not have to mean you live a traumatized life. And in fact, that's what you're describing. Your your normal crazy life like everybody else. But you within reason. Right, right. That, that, but but for people who are traumatized, they take that terrible event. It overwhelms your system the way we're talking about where you can't like make memories very well and the earth doesn't feel right and all that stuff. And you take those experiences and you create a meaning around it. You may know people, they're sort of the famous trauma example is like, you know, two people are in a car accident. One person never gets back in a car and the other person tells the story at a cocktail party. You know, that's, they're both in the same event, 
but it's how do you then move forward in life? You know, when my cousin died, my brother was around that age and he drowned and my brother found him in the water. And I spent the next, I don't know, 10 years, 15 years of my life terrified that my older brother was going to die. And he went to boarding school. So I was even more terrified when he was away in boarding school. I just would ship him cookies and I would go to his games, even if I didn't want to go, because I would just feel better. I had created this meaning of fear and nobody knew because I, we, we didn't come from that culture of talking about it. And so I really was trying to manage it by myself and I was little, so it was impossible. But when you're talking about it, part of what I'm really taking in is that we talked about metaphors before we, we started recording. And I shared with you the one that I like the most, which is sort of that you have to grow the muscles to carry the grief and that you grow into becoming a griever. It's not a before and after scenario, but in order to do that and do that safely, you might need some coaching. And it sounds like you at least had a lot of people around you who were talking about the loss of Mick and their own, you know, experience. Probably, yeah, pro- probably just in our family. You in know, your pro- family, like, yeah. I can relate that thing about that the car crash thing. I grew up in a, in a Catholic family. After my brother died, my mother kind of she was, became sort of more Catholic. And I can't, ex- can't give examples of how, but she kind of became more Catholic, where Mick's death killed religion. For my father, that was religion finished as far as my, like, I think in a funny way, it really helped my, I ended up having a great relationship with my father. And one of the things we used to do, unbeknownst to my mother, although I used to always wonder, did she know? So my mother used to go, my mother used to go to Saturday evening mass, but she didn't go to the same mass that we went to. So I was pretty sure in school that I was the only teenager who used to skip mass with his father. (laughs) So my father and I uh, would go out to mass in the Verde Commons and we'd go down to the news agents and we'd buy the Sunday newspapers and we'd park in a kind of car park by the sea nearby and we'd read the papers and we'd talk and then we'd, we'd oh come God, home. I love that story. At the time, I was the only one, for a lot of this period, I was the only one at home. So, yeah, yeah, of course, because you're younger. Also, well, that also changed. Like I, I used to, for a while, I used to wonder if Mick hadn't died, you know, I wouldn't have been the only one at home for such a yeah. long time yeah. on my own. Sorry, you know, I, the rest of them had moved out, you know. But I can remember step, one of the reasons I thought my mother knew was a couple of times on Sunday evening she would have sort of said slyly, you know, I don't know why you buy those newspapers. She said to my father because you hardly ever read them, and of course it seemed like he hardly ever read them because right, we read them. Right, because he hardly read them with you. Yeah. Uh, and I remember my poor parents. When I think about this now, so my brother died suddenly. And in an awful scenario. And then about a year later, less than a year later, I picked up this strange virus and I was ill at home in school for, or from home, uh, ill at home from school for a few weeks. And I wasn't getting any better. The local GP thought I was malingering. My mother, thankfully, knew that, you know, her youngest child wasn't well and basically badgered the GP into letting, uh, letting her bring me to, to, to casualty or what uh, yeah. er I could yeah. call it. and they they took my pulse and they kind of <laughs> i could see their faces dropping as they took my pulse and, and various other things well i had i had contracted a virus they, they never found the source of the virus and um, but my pulse was racing i was i, I eventually discovered after a month well weeks and weeks of investigations that i had a thing called viral pericarditis where a virus leaves fluid in the lining of your heart and your heart is beating too fast so I, I had that and I ended up having to take a year off. I'm sure they've 
treatment for it now, but I ended up having to take a year off school. Wow. At the time, I was so focused. I must confess, at that time, I was so focused on, you know, poor me, oh, my misery. I wasn't really thinking about my parents that much. I was going to miss a year of school and take a year and and spend spend most of a year in bed, which was pretty miserable. But of course, my poor parents had buried their son, you know, less than 12 months beforehand and suddenly had to be faced with this. And there was a period of about, I think, maybe five or six weeks where they didn't know what was wrong with me. So I was in hospital and they didn't know what was wrong with me. And I'm sure they had, they were, they had a terrible time. But I, because that happened, I missed a year of school. And I went back in my last year of school. All my friends had, had left and were at university. Yeah, of course. Was, you know, I was 19 and I could have, you know, effectively growing a beard if I wanted to. Instead of, <laughs> you know, sitting on the bus in a school uniform, it was just awful. Oh, God. But the school, the school was going to send me to, to this two-day retreat. And I didn't, I didn't want to go. And I went and talked to there was one school teacher I had a really good relationship with, and he said, oh, "Look, I'm sorry, Paul, you, you've got to go. You know, you just, I know I understand exactly. Man. You've got to go. The only way you're getting out of this is if you're if one of your parents writes you a note saying they don't want you to go. That they, you know, when I was like, okay, when do I have that note? When do I kind of looked at him and he said, no, no, one of your parents has to sign the note. And I said, yeah, yeah, that's fine. And I went to my dad and I said, yeah. listen, I don't want to go. You know, and he was like, where do I sign? Give me the pen. You know, Ah. Awesome. You know, when my father died, I, we, as the rest of us, kind of made it clear, and I was highly involved that I wanted us to say something about my father at my father's funeral. Yeah. But I didn't want it to be a Catholic funeral where some fella who knows nothing about my dad talks. Yeah. So, because there's rules about that. I've written about it. There it- are- it's so yeah, awkward, right. Paul. I gave my mother's eulogy, but I had to fight to give it. And you can't, we have, all these things you can't say. And the people in the audience don't know that. And so they think you're yep. kind of saying weird stuff because they don't know. You can't adulate them. You can't say that they went straight to heaven. You can really only talk about them as a Catholic. It's it's nuts. Oh, well, they are, our, our rules are a bit mad, but they're not quite that bad because they, they, they start in certain dioceses here they've stopped you doing it entirely and i know i understand why because people were saying things that were just inappropriate things at times to be said in the so in the in our diocese they had they had a decision they made a decision to stop that and it just happened my father passed away a couple of weeks before we got married and i was telling I, the, the priest who was going to marry us I, I just was letting him know what happened and i was complaining to him that we wanted to have a eulogy for my father and that they weren't very keen on the idea. And he said, oh, who's going to say mass? Where's your parish? And I said, oh. he said, okay. And this actually, I'll always um, be thankful for this guy to this. So he, he went off the call and I was home obviously at the stage. My father died a day or two before. And so Arthur was going to marry us in a couple of weeks afterwards. And he rang me back and he said, I've been in touch with your parish priest. And I'm going to say, as long as you're happy enough, I'm going to say your father's funeral mass. What most people don't realize is you're not allowed to give a eulogy during the mass right. and you're not allowed to give a, a eulogy during the funeral rite, but they're technically two separate things. So when the mass finishes and before we start the second thing, you can say there are strict rules about what you can. He said, you're a smart enough fellow that you're not going to say anything, which is going to cause me a problem. Are you? And I said, no, no, I just want, no, I just want to talk. We just want to talk about my father. And he said, you, off you go. And actually, giving the eulogy at my father's funeral is one of the things I'm most proud of doing in my whole life. It didn't occur to any of us to want to say, if you know, I'm not. Actually, I think at the time, if if someone if someone had 
Well, if someone you, had said, I, I couldn't have, I could, you know, I just couldn't have spoke, you know. I could and barely I, do it as a grown woman at my mother's funeral with, you know, days oh, and days to prepare. Well, funny, I remember when, when I did, I, this goes back to, I think, I, the youngest child thing of, I'd like to talk about, you know, I think um, they all agreed. And um, I said, well, look, I'd write it, you know. And I, being, being youngest, I was thinking someone else would. So I said, well, so who's going to give it then? And there was a lot of looking, at, a lot of shuffling and looking at feet, you know. And I was like, okay, I'll do it. And it was funny, a few people asked me, how did you do that? And I was thinking, it actually was, it was easier than I thought because yeah. you, you might have the same thing. There was a kind of a thing where it was kind of like, I don't want to let him down. Yeah. I had that moment at my mom's funeral. Mike was going to read it for me if I couldn't do it. And I just had this moment of real grace. She would want me to do this and she would want me to be calm and I just could do it. I want to ask you this question because it's been running through my head this whole time. Either when Mick died or over time, you've said the Catholicism element is not your jam. Do you believe in heaven? Like, how do you think of him? there's this grief theory. There are many of them that are not about religion. It's a theory, which is in order to kind of integrate the loss, you, you, the phrase is called continuing bonds. You learn how to think about them in the present day. And I keep asking people this question because I do not think of either of my parents or my friend who died when my twenties or Chris, who died when I was eight, they are dead to me. They stopped living and I don't think about them. I don't talk to them in my head. I don't, I, I have moments where I'm sad and think, oh my God, my dad would have loved this. Or my mom would have wanted to know that there was going to be another series of that show. But I don't in my head, I don't say, Hey mom, your favorite TV show. So I'm just curious. Like I don't believe in heaven. And I always wonder, is that because I don't have a place for them to be running around in my mind? So I'm just curious for you, like where, where is Mick in your mind? How do you think of him? That's a really interesting question. Cause I'm, you know, I, I, I think I've been a lapsed Catholic for a very long time. I can remember telling my mother that one, again, this is one of these things I think back on as I referenced earlier and I kind of shudder, you know, I think I told my mother on a Christmas morning that I wasn't going to go to mass that day and I didn't really believe. And I, I was, as the youngest, I was the last white hope, I think, or the last great hope, yeah. you know, so it was a, that didn't play well. I kind of joke that I'm too cautious to be an atheist, that I'm kind of, I am an agnostic. There's a part of me thinks that a lot of organized religions only exist to help us cope with death. Yeah. That if you think about it, if you think about, if you think about the Christianity, uh, and the only one I really, you know, I, I know a little bit about others, but the only one I really know intimately is, is you know, Catholicism and Christianity. You know, the, the core, one of the core belief systems is the concept of heaven yeah and and an afterlife and and being reunited with and you know it's right through all of the catholic canons and tenets and all of it everything you know everything's about that i'm probably a bit hypocritical so i'm I'm a lapsed catholic on the one hand but on the other hand if you told me that there is nothing i would find that concept a bit miserable yeah Um, so i don't know what you have a, a little bit of heaven maybe in your mind or something i have a hope that there's something you know i have a hope that there's something i hope that, you know, I, I don't talk to mick or to my parents or you know i don't say oh. but then i do sometimes you know i kind of like i remember i brought my our middle child to anfield to see liverpool a couple <laughs> of years ago 
Good for you. Good man. And, uh, and I brought the older crowd to see to Man United to see to Old Trafford to see Man United a couple of years before. So, but I'm a Liverpool fan. Yes. My father, God rest him, brought me and Mick to Anfield when I was about the same age. Ah. Yeah, Rory was. And a couple of things happened on that trip. Strange things. Yeah. Strange coincidences that made me think, hmm, that's an odd, just odd coincidences. So I booked the trip. I took a notion. Uh, I'd been promising where I'd do it. And he kind of, over the Christmas holidays, he mentioned to me. So I'm, I think it's early January, and it's generally very hard to get tickets, but there happened to be a, a cup game on a Friday evening, and you get tickets. So I booked it all quite quickly. So I went online and I booked the hotel through one of those blind hotel websites where sure. you know you know you're getting a you know you're the best getting place. Alleged, yeah allegedly a four star hotel which it actually wasn't but that's a whole other uh, ball of wax. But anyway, so I didn't know the hotel I booked, and I bought the tickets online from a kind of a not quite a scalper but not yeah. a million you know I'm very someone else. Yeah. Someone else is an online reseller, so someone else has seen the ticket. So again, didn't know where in the ground yeah. I was sitting. And the memory of that weekend with my father and with Mick was is very particular to me. It's it's one of the few things you know, I have vivid memories of the entire weekend. My father got redundancy payment from the factory that he worked in. It was closing down, and he spent a portion of that money bringing me and Mick to to Liverpool to see to see a game, and it's a really the whole weekend, it's a real vivid memory of my childhood. Yeah. Um, so we went over the boat and I was talking to Rory about this. And I couldn't get flights for some reason. So we took the boat and after I booked the hotel, I got the email from the hotel, the website confirming it. And I looked and I went, oh my God. Now, I don't know how many hotels there are in Liverpool, but I'm guessing that it was the same hotel. That's nuts. And I, was, and I went, and that was the first hotel I'd ever stayed in as a child and, and probably the first for a long time. So I remembered it vividly and I was like, Wait that's, a second. Yeah. That's odd. Yeah, that doesn't matter. I said to Rory, this is odd. And um, so then I arrived in the hotel and I was very worried that the, the ticket guy was going to have posted the tickets to the hotel. And I was thinking, I hope they're there. So I checked in and I said, Do you have tickets for me? And he said, Yeah. And I you know, went up and checked in and into the room. I went online just out of, curious, out of curiosity to see where the tickets are. And I went, Hmm, that's also kind of odd. They look like they're in relatively that stand is on the same side of the ground that we were on. Now, the, the stadium has changed. We sure. were on terrace with, with my father. Uh, we, we were in our because I wanted to make sure he had the whole kind of experience. Terribly yeah. And then so we walked up from into the, into the stand. And I was kind of freaked out at this point because I was in pretty, you know, the stand. So we were, we were in like a, on the first level of a stand, which hadn't existed. It was a terrace in Pakistan. But the view but is the same. If, yeah, if you drew a rectangle, we were in exactly the same place as I was with my dad and Mick. Now, I'm willing to buy one coincidence. Yeah, that's too much. The, the other funny thing that happened was, so we stayed for the weekend, and I'd always remembered my dad taking us to, bringing us. So on the Sunday after the game, he brought us to Mass, and he went to the concierge hotel, and he asked where the nearest church was for Mass, and the guy directed him to a church where there's this church for Mass. We sat there and seemed exactly like Mass until the Our Father or the Lord's Prayer went in a different direction near the end. And we realized that... You were in an Anglican church? 
We were we were in a we were in a high church of England. We were but this wasn't my this was probably the first time in my life I'd been in a you know uh, in a, in, a, in an Anglican church and I was like Ooh. and I heard my father after saying just don't, don't tell your mother don't tell your mother it wasn't mass because the poor vicar as we left he was terribly excited because there's hardly anyone there he thought he got new parishioners yeah. you know my dad was like we're actually from the other side you know but he kind of they kind of laughed but. And then on the Sunday, and the church was right. I hadn't realized, I, I remember this, but the church was this beautiful old church, which is right beside the hotel. And then I were coming back on the Sunday evening and the church had been locked all the time, but they were in practicing choir singing. So I was able to go in and have a nose and have a look around. And once in a blue moon, things like that happen. And I kind of think, and like when I, when I was there at the ground, I thought that, that whole weekend, I thought a lot about making up with my father, because probably that's, the only thing in my childhood that was just the three of just us. Just the three of you. I just get that. Big families. Yeah. And, it, and it, was, it was a strange thing to think about as well, because you kind of, I know this, is, I've known this for a long time. No one else remembers. Right. You know, no one remembers all of these anecdotes. So it was important for me to tell Rory more and more about the things that could happen. If there's a big football match on or something, I think about Mick or I think about my dad or, you know, if there's a particular golf, like after, my dad was a big golf fan and after my father died, Irish golfers did incredibly well for several years. Oh my goodness. I, was, I, was, I was really angry about that. Yeah, why couldn't they have done that when I was really, alive? Yeah, I was really angry about it because he missed it. And I was like, fucker, it's just yeah. not fair, you know. Um, one thing happened, I, I had one strange experience that made me think, well, maybe someone's looking after me when I was at university. I saw some friends on the other, late one evening, I saw some friends on the other side of the road and I ran across the road in front of the, the main road in front of the college to sit, to see them. And I didn't look properly and I was hit full on square by My a car. God. And I bounced off the bonnet of the car. I bounced off the windscreen of the car. Now he saw me, so he started to slow. And I bounced off the windscreen, and I then fell on the other side of the road. Luckily, there was nothing coming on the other side of the road. He got out, he helped me up, and he said, "Come on, I'll bring you to hospital." And I and I kind of I was shocked, and I was like, "I think I'm okay." Actually, I checked, and I, and I can remember him saying, "You can't be okay." Right. I I hit you at whatever speed he hit me at. With the car. Yeah, you cannot be okay, and I was like, "No." We kind of checked, and he said, "No, I, I really think I should." bring you to this hospital quite close by. He said, I really think I should bring you to the hospital. And then um, I was like, no, actually, honestly, I think I'm fine. My two friends who thought thought they were witnessing my death, they said, yeah. because, you know, so, and I I was going off to see a late night comedy show. So I remember walking home thinking, oh yeah, I'm going to wake up. I'm going to be covered in bruises. And I'm going to be really sore. And I woke up the next morning and there wasn't a mark on me. That's amazing. And I remember that. I remember thinking, hmm, I didn't think about it at the time, but the more yeah. I thought about it afterwards, the more I just thought, okay, that was a fluke. That was an amazing fluke. I was hit by a car. You know, it wasn't like he slightly glanced me. He yeah. hit me straight on. I bounced on the bonnet. I bounced on the windscreen and I bounced off again. And when I bounced on the road on the other side, it was luck that there wasn't something coming the other way. So that I don't particularly believe in anything, but that's the one thing in my life that I think, yeah, somebody was looking out for me. Yeah. And the only person that could have been at that point was Mick because my parents were still alive. Mm. Wow. But then the other thing I thought afterwards a long time I thought about, I thought, yeah, he might have saved me from Brian, but he probably would have made me get hurt a bit. <laughs> <laughs> my mom and I, after my dad died, after my mom and after my dad died, my mom and I would laugh at 
both some of the stories, which of course, you know, my mom was deeply religious. She believed in guardian angels, but she also had this very wicked sense of humor. She was deeply Catholic and deeply spiritual, but we would get these cards that would say, you know, may you remember him in the wings of a hummingbird or something. And we would laugh and be like, more, more like a traffic jam, more like a hurricane. He would never agree to a hummingbird. That was not who my dad was. But I really appreciate you talking about this because, you know, I think we like things to be linear and to make some kind of sense or to have it sort of locked into a level of understanding. And you've been carrying this for, you know, decades, but I think exactly what you just described is how we are, which is nobody really knows anything. But we all have these moments. People have heard me talk about it. I sort of hate the whole idea of like guardian angels and heaven doesn't, I just can't feel it, but I would love to. I haven't given up on the idea that maybe I'll grow into the idea of something more concrete as an afterlife, but it it just doesn't feel real to me. It's funny, I sometimes feel jealous a bit of, Yeah. I don't know, know, you know, the, the common way it's depicted in cinema and television. So, you know, you know, you sit talking about where, you know, someone's sitting on a bench and they're talking to their father and mother but, yeah. and, and, they, and they feel that kind of connection. Of, I don't, I simply don't feel yeah. that. I don't, you know, I do more, yeah, once in a blue moon, I might in my head talk to them, sort of. Here's the, here's another example. This is probably very on ours. I don't particularly go to their grave. Yeah, I don't either. And the reason... They're not at the grave for me. I mean, we're about to sell my mother's house and I have a lot of feeling about that because that's where I saw her and visited her. And so the idea in my mind, if she was going to be anywhere, it would be in her house. And when we sell this house, it will look different and it will be someone else's house. So my initial sort of like extra grief about losing the house has nothing to do with the house or the property. It's like, where is she going to go in my mind? Because that's yeah. where I have her. It's not heaven. It's just where she always was. I felt sorry for my sister after my father passed away because, you know, he, he lived across the road from her. So yeah. she saw him every day. And You're haunted I saw by him the him. memories of them. Yeah. No, I never really saw him. I didn't see him. He came down to see me in once a room, but I didn't see him that way. But it's funny that, that, that sort of saying, I brought my son to Anfield. And I never, Mick was a huge Liverpool fan. And arguably, I was a Liverpool fan because he was probably. And it never struck me quite before. I actually haven't been there to see Liverpool play since I went with my dad. I've been at Anfield to see other games, but not, not, not Liverpool play. I watched a lot of them on television, but it's not the same. No. When I was there with Rory, and maybe because we were in the same place, it suddenly struck me and I thought, if there is anything else, he's here for every home game. Because where else would he be? This was his temple. This is it. Is you know, if there is anything else, his spirit is here and it's always here for home games and it's if they're playing away he's there because he loved that and the other thing i thought was funny was that idea i brought i brought rory but it it was so stupid but i had that realization so obvious an epiphany i was like that's bloody obvious yeah they do like a stadium tour thing so i brought rory on tour um then the next day and we walked around and there was a it's kind of an, an audio kind of guy you know the headphones thing so there's not there isn't guides there aren't guides but you can go and walk to the side of the pitch and we were down near near the, the famous part of the ground which is called the cop end so that's where the real hardcore Liverpool fans go and that's where we were when I was there as a child and I remember being there as a child being amazed 
by the fact that there was a little hill in front of the goal. I remember pointing it out to my dad. I forget who, whether it was Mick saw it first or my dad, but we were all like, oh, look, there's a hill. And there was a groundsman when we were walking around Florida, and I remember saying to him, um, you've taken away the hill. And he laughed and he said, you were obviously here a long way. I said, yeah. He said, yeah. He said, and I was asking him, I said, you know, do they you still let people scatter ashes here? And he said, no, we, can't, we just can't do that anymore, you know, because... Yeah. You'd be covered in ashes. Yeah. But, but even that thing, you know, when I do go to the, to, to their grave and they're all, all, well, my parents and my brother are in the, the one grave. I don't go because I don't go that often because A, they're not there and B, it just upsets me. Yeah. No. And it's his death that upsets me particularly. And I look, I just go, I, I look at the grave. I brought the kids a couple of times to show them, but I kind of, I kind of, why, why would I force myself to get upset about something I can do nothing about? You know, yes, it's bad. You know, sorry, it as a it as a thing is bad enough as it is. Why, you know, why bang yourself over the head with it? Like I remember, I feel I feel slightly ashamed of this. So, as I mentioned earlier, I, I missed a year of school with a heart disease just not long afterwards. And the father of a friend of my brother's died, and I was just at a point where I was starting to be allowed to go out after my illness. So I went to that funeral and this guy's father was buried in the same cemetery as my brother, not that far away. I said, I'm ashamed of it. And it was just a stupid thing to do. So I went to the funeral and in Ireland, you go to the funeral mass. And then if you know the people or if you're as a sign of ex, you know, you, you go to the burial. So like yeah. there's a decade, you know, there's, yeah, you, you know, there's, there are ceremonies at the graveside. So you go to the graveyard, so the graveyard and then, um, of course, I, I'm pretty sure I'd never seen my brother's gravestone because it hadn't, I don't think it had been put up. Yeah. Because I'd been ill or, yeah. and, you know, I, I rambled across and it just, you uh, know, it absolutely floored me. Yeah. And I have a recollection of my brother's friend whose father had died coming to console me. Yeah. Given how, and I was thinking, no, 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 you shouldn't, this should be the other way around. You know, your father's died. This is my brother died a year and a half ago, or whatever. This, but I was maybe it was I, shared. I mean, maybe it I, was. Compatible. I was in a very, you know, I was in a really bad way, and I can't. And I, yeah. I don't see. I don't see the value of going. They're not there. They're not. You know, I don't buy this kind of. You know, we go and, you know, buy a beer and pour it over the ground, or that's. I don't. That's. I don't do any of that sort of stuff. So yeah, I mean, yeah. the way I feel about that is everybody should do what makes sense to them to do exactly i don't judge anyone else but i'm always curious about it and mike said this thing to me just after my because i said like you know a lot of people a lot of my mother's friends who were religious i mean she was it was the cornerstone of her social life and they would say oh she's looking down on you in heaven and i think i let that go for a little bit and then it was just so painful because they got comfort out of that but I didn't that eventually I had to say these little old ladies like I know you mean well I know but you have to stop saying that to me like tell me a story I don't know about my mom but stop saying heaven because it's just killing me and they were sweet about it I mean I was probably more gracious in my language because I thought it out and I said to Mike what do you what do you think happens and he said this thing to me which I I'll just have it forever is he said, well, if there is a concept of heaven, then everybody gets what they believe in. Everybody gets what they want. Even now that could make me cry. Like that idea, right? I mean, I just, 
I love that. And I've decided that that's what I'm going to hold on to because like you, I have stories where I can feel an energy that feels too suspicious to be nothing, but I don't know what it means that the Christian sort of heaven, I, it just doesn't work. But the idea of energy, I have a scientist friend who talks about how, you know, energy really, when someone dies, their energy goes back to the earth and there's no hmm. reason to believe that you couldn't, with your energy, pull it towards you. And that I love. It's pretty mystical and certainly not Catholic, but it, that works for me. I think, you know, as of many things, Mike, Mike makes a good point. I know, point. I love it. It was such a gift. But, I mean, my husband is a gift. There are, such a gift. There are, this makes me sound like esoteric and, you know, mystic. There are places that I have been, some of them I've been to lots of times, now, maybe this is me projecting my view onto them, but they feel to me like they have a particular energy or yeah. something about them. places. Right. And I'm thinking of places like in Ireland, places like Newgrange. Yeah. Places like Tara. There's something about, I don't know what it is. There's something about Tara. And maybe it's just history. Maybe it is just a sense of, of history. But the thing Mike said about heaven reminds me of, do you know that old, that great old joke about the Catholics in heaven? No, tell me. So an Anglican gentleman passed away and he, St. Peter welcomes him at the pearly gates and says, no, I'll give you the full tour. You have, you have time. And he says, well, all the time in the world, you have got time. So uh, St. Peter walks around and he says, you know, so there's with the unlimited you know, buffet. You can have any food you want. There's alcohol. We don't try a bet on it, but there is alcohol. Obviously, you know, you can play any sort of sports. And you can actually go and play with some of your sports heroes that have passed or present. You can go and talk to famous historical characters. Everyone's here. So he's like, well, oh. and he said, that's amazing. And he sees the, you know, lovely val fertile valleys and running streams and everything's really happy and everyone's really happy. And they come around the corner and there's a huge wall. And there's kind of, you know, soundproofing and, you know, there's no way in, there's no door. What's behind the wall? He said, well, he said, you see, if you look down over the far side there, he said, yeah, he said, so you look down there, he said, so down there, he said, there's Anglicans, he said, there's Jehovah's Witnesses down there, there's Jewish people, there's Muslims, there's people of no faith down the far side, he said, yeah, but what's behind the wall? He said, oh, those people, they're the Catholics. He said, why are they behind the wall? He said, they really like to think they have the place to themselves. <laughs> <and> the such a delight to talk to you you've given me so much of your time today i i mean i'm grateful for the podcast i'm personally just really grateful to share these stories with you it meant a lot to me that when you've reached out and and about my writing and you shared your beautiful piece which i'll find and put in our show notes so people can read it if they would like to that you wrote about mick in the irish times years ago i'm just really grateful for you sharing you know, your family story and your story of loss and to see your face and hear you smile and know that you're carrying it and sharing it with your family and, you know, just helping us believe that it can be done. Thank you so much for being here today. This beautiful conversation with Paul. I'm loving doing the podcast for you all. Thank you so much for all the direct messages and all the support on Instagram and your various pages. We're still slowly getting ourselves up onto the various streaming systems. Anywhere that you can leave us a good review and share the work, we would really love it. We're waiting for Apple Podcasts. And as soon as that happens, I'll ask you all to go back and 
give us a you know five star review and tell people to listen so that more folks can be supported through grief and loss. Thanks so much and looking forward to next week.